Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. That will be our text today, the first 10 verses of John, as we continue in the I Am statements of Jesus. John chapter 10 is the parable of the sheepfold. It's where Jesus makes the statement, I am the door of the sheep. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the door. You are our entrance into salvation. Father, I pray today that you would, by your Holy Spirit, indwelling your people, open our eyes, open our ears, open the eyes of our understanding, Father, that you would take this word, take your gospel, and mold us and shape us, renew us and transform us for your glory, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text today, these first 10 verses of John 10, is the parable of the sheepfold. Like other parables Jesus gave his disciples, they did not at first understand what he was saying to them, what he was trying to teach them through this illustration. There are two parts to this parable. The first part in verses 1 through 5 is Jesus presenting the parable. The second part in verses 6 through 10, because his disciples did not understand, Jesus gives them the plain meaning of the parable. In doing so, he declares himself to be the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before him, he declares to be thieves and robbers. Fortunately, his sheep did not hear those thieves and robbers, nor do they today. So as we look at this parable, there are some key components to it. And I just, I just kind of made a list of those key components of this parable in order of their appearance. So in verse 1, we have the sheepfold. What's a sheepfold? It's a 
kind of a foreign concept to us today, unless you raise sheep, and I don't know how many people here do, except my, my son does. Um, in my backyard is the sheepfold. Um, but a sheepfold, um, and not just in Jesus' day, you can go to parts of the world today and still see sheepfolds that are used on a regular basis. It's an enclosure to provide safety and shelter for the sheep. The door. We'll, we'll talk more about all of these terms. The door in verse 1. The door was the one and only entranceway into the sheepfold. So a sheepfold had one entrance and one entrance only. And it was called the door or the gate. Again, in verse 1, Jesus talks about some other way. There's a door, which is the way to go in, but he talks about some other way. What is that? Well, that's entry into the sheepfold by any other way than the door. And then he talks about thieves and robbers. He who comes in by some other way other than the door he said, is a thief and a robber. So a thief and a robber is anyone not using the door to enter the sheepfold. Then in verse 2, he makes this declaration. Uh, well, he says that he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So who is the shepherd of the sheep? Jesus defines it as he who enters by the door. And then in verse 3, he mentions a doorkeeper. And he says, the doorkeeper opens to the shepherd of the sheep. Who is the doorkeeper? He's the one who guards the entrance to the sheepfold. And then in verse 3 and 4, Jesus mentions the sheep. And he mentions specifically his own sheep. So when he talks about the sheep in this parable, he's talking about his own sheep. All the sheep who belong to the shepherd are his sheep. They're his own sheep. Then in verse 5, he mentions a stranger. Who is the stranger? It's anyone who is not the shepherd of the sheep. It's that one who tries to come in by some other way some way other than the door. The stranger is lawless. And Jesus said, his sheep will not hear, do not listen, will not follow a stranger. Then in verse 6, my new King James uses um, the translation of this word. It, it says, Jesus used this illustration. This word translated illustration means a parable. It means a figure of speech. It's an illustration. It's Jesus painting a picture with words. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. So who is Jesus? He's the door of the sheep. Verse 8, again, he says, all who ever came before me, all who came before him are thieves and robbers. Verse 9, we see the term door, the door again. And in this context, Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus 
is the way to salvation, the way to life. He who comes in will be saved, will find salvation. He will find pasture, life. Verse 10 talks about the thief. Who is the thief? Jesus says the thief is the one who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And the implication is that he's coming to kill, steal, and destroy the sheep. And also in verse 10, Jesus makes this statement, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So these are the key components of the parable of the sheepfold. So let's go back to verse 1 and let's go through this parable. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So the sheepfold had one door through which the sheep would go in and come out. The walls of the sheepfold were thick. They were thick enough at the base so that they could be built up several feet, maybe not above a man's head, but at least up to a man's head more than likely so that he could see what was outside the sheepfold and not get ambushed by someone. But it was high enough so that the sheep could not jump out of the sheepfold. And typically, they would put briars or thorns. Uh, they didn't have razor wire in Jesus' day, but they had God's equivalent, which is uh, like the thorn, the crown of thorns that was pressed into Jesus' head. I've got one in my office, and those thorns are huge. Well, they would put uh, those at the top of that fence to, d to discourage thieves and robbers or predators who might try to get into the sheepfold to get the sheep. The sheep were kept in the sheepfold to protect them from thieves and robbers and other predators. With only one door, the sheepfold was guarded by a doorkeeper. And thieves and robbers would not use the door because there was a doorkeeper there when the sheep were in there. So they would try to go over the wall some other way to gain access to the sheep. In verse 2, Jesus says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So remember, thieves and robbers go over the wall some other way, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd of the sheep enters the sheepfold by the door. There's no reason for the shepherd of the sheep to have to enter any other way. All others not welcome to go into the sheepfold come in some other lawless way. That's why they're called thieves and robbers. Then in verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens. To who? To the shepherd of the sheep, to the one who uses the door. The doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by, the, by name and leads them out. Now, in, in sheepfolds, in many places in the world where they raise sheep, you can have a sheepfold large enough that you have more than one flock in that sheepfold. And shepherds have such an intimate relationship with their sheep. I, I, I read one account where at night the shepherd could take hold of the face of his sheep and he would know what sheep he had hold of because he could feel the face of that sheep 
because he was that intimately involved with the sheep. Now, when we get to the next I am statement, which is I am the good shepherd, we're going to bring the 23rd Psalm into that, and we're going to talk about what the 23rd Psalm communicates in terms of a shepherd in relationship to his sheep. But a shepherd could call his sheep by name, and his sheep would come to that shepherd, but they would not go to another shepherd. Because the sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. And this is what Jesus is saying. My sheep know my voice and no other will they follow. And the doorkeeper opens to the shepherd of the sheep. Well, who is this doorkeeper? Well, this doorkeeper is best understood to be God the Father from whom Christ as man and mediator, derives his authority and by whom he is let into and invested with his office called the shepherd of the sheep here. There's also an application here for the Holy Spirit who opens the hearts of men who are Christ's sheep. Do you ever wonder why you can see and you can hear and you know Christ, but maybe friends or family or acquaintances, it's like, why can't they see this? Why can't they understand this? Well, it's because they don't know the voice of their shepherd, of the good shepherd. Because the doorkeeper has not opened their heart yet to hear and to know the voice of the shepherd of the sheep with ears to hear from the Holy Spirit, his sheep hear his voice and respond to the shepherd of the sheep as the doorkeeper opens to him. The shepherd calls his sheep and they hear his voice. The shepherd knows and calls his sheep by name. If you remember when we, uh, on Easter Sunday, and we read the account of the resurrection of Christ, and remember when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And she runs back and she tells Peter and John and the other disciples. And they run to the tomb and Peter goes in and then John goes in. But the tomb is empty and the Bible says they go back to their homes. But Mary stays. She lingers at the tomb. And as Mary is lingering at the tomb, she peers in. She sees two angels. She's distraught. She's surprised. She's shocked. She turns around and there is Jesus standing there. Except Mary doesn't know it's Jesus. The scripture tells us that she thinks it's the gardener. And she says to this would-be gardener, Sir, tell me where you've taken the body of, 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 of the man who was in this tomb. And if, if you show me where he is, I will take him away. And Jesus says, Jesus the good shepherd says to his sheep, he calls her by name and he says, Mary. And the very moment he calls her name, her eyes are open and she sees that it's not the gardener. It is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ standing before her. Jesus knows his sheep and he calls them by name. He knows your name. You may feel like sometimes God's not even aware of you because of the trials and the tribulations that you might be going through. But I promise you, he knows not just your trials, not just your tribulations, but he knows your very name. 
And it says, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He knows your name, and you know his voice. The doorkeeper opens to the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd calls and brings out his own sheep. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him. They follow him because they know his voice, and no other will they follow. Verse 5, yet... They will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. They will, why will they by no means follow a stranger, but flee from him? Why? Because they do not know the voice of strangers. They know only the voice of their shepherd, for they are his own sheep. If we cannot follow a stranger... Do we need to test the spirits to see if they are of God? Should we read and study God's word in order to rightly divide it and to grow in it and to be transformed by it, especially if we will by no means follow or even know the voice of strangers? I mean, if we belong to Jesus and we won't follow anyone else, then we just, what's the point? Some Christians seem to live their life that way. But the answer to all these questions is an emphatic yes. Should you read and study God's word? Yes. Should you test the spirits to see whether they be of God? Yes. Should Should you seek to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ and be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Yes, you should. Of course we should do all of these things because we are commanded to do so but also because it is for our fruitful good and the good of others who need to hear the gospel and the uncompromising word of truth. How will you give them the word of truth if you do not know the truth? How will you speak God's word if you don't know God's word? How will you give to them and live for them the gospel if you don't know the gospel? And if we go through life thinking life is all about us, We are sadly mistaken because we are here for a reason, for a purpose. The fact that we are his sheep and will by no means follow a stranger but flee, the fact that we know only the voice of our shepherd means that we should study to show ourselves approved. A workman that need not be ashamed but one who rightly divides the word of truth. We are not committing ourselves to scripture because we need to learn to recognize his voice but because we recognize it already and we need to grow in his love, his wisdom, and in obedience to him, walking by faith and not by sight. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus gives them the parable, but they did not understand what he was trying to teach them. And it's not just his disciples who were with him then. The issue very often is not a lack of recognition of his voice, but a lack of understanding of his words. If we will continue to press into his word, he will give to us the grace to understand and to obey, to walk, to actually walk by faith and not by sight. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, to illuminate his word, to open the eyes of our understanding, to make 
known to us the exceeding greatness of his power that works toward us. So in verses 7 and 8, it says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. Now here is that I am statement. Remember, this got Jesus in trouble before. It's going to get him in trouble again. But this is using the name of God to declare himself to be the door of the sheep. In verse 8, he says, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. That's good news. What that tells us is that throughout the history of God's people, starting in the garden, God has always had and always will have a remnant. When we use that word remnant, we want to think of a little bitty tiny group of people. Don't think that way. God is going to save the world. God is going to save a world full of people. It's going to be more than a little bitty tiny remnant of people. But the Bible uses this language to help us understand when it looks like all the world around us is going to hell and everyone's lost their mind, don't think that God is unaware. Don't think that God is not working because he is working. And God always has his remnant and that remnant will not hear, will not follow the voice of a stranger. It knows only the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus emphatically declares, I am the door of the sheep. He begins with, most assuredly, I say to you. He uses the name of God in reference to himself when he most assuredly declares, I am the door of the sheep. Declaring himself to be the door of the sheep is another way of declaring himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. In just a few chapters Ahead of where we are right here, when Jesus is with his disciples before he's taken to be crucified, he makes that declaration. When they ask him, Lord, show us the way, and his response is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Saying that he is the door of the sheep is saying that he is the only way to the Father. In verse 9, he says again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's a picture of life. That's a picture of abundance. That's the picture of thriving, not just surviving. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. This is an exclusive claim by Jesus. He's not saying he's one of many doors or even one of few doors. He is the door, and there is no other door that leads to life. No other door that leads to salvation. Jesus makes this exclusive claim about himself here and, as we just said in John 14, 6. We live in a culture that likes to erroneously... Listen to me, church. Our culture likes to erroneously... Point out that love is love. They embrace a God and they embrace a Jesus, whether they believe he is God or not. They like to quote him. They like to point out who he is and what he actually does. But they do it wrongly in error because they don't know God and they don't know Jesus. But they embrace a God, a Jesus that doesn't care about sin, the God of our culture, little g, God of our culture, and too many churches 
only care about the kind of love that is all-inclusive, non-judgmental, and expecting of all people, accepting of all people, no matter who they love, no matter who they worship, no matter what they practice. When I say this, I'm not just talking about the world. In fact, I'm most specifically talking about the church. Because our problem is not the world. The problem is the church. Jesus didn't say, when the world gets its act together, I'll heal your land. He said, when the church gets its act together, I'll heal your land. And so while we're busy pointing fingers at the church, we need to make sure, I mean, at the world, we need to make sure that we're paying attention to what's happening or not happening in the church. Because the church is the key to the healing of our nation. The church is the key for the healing of any land, of any people, of any nation. And the, the God, the Jesus that the culture embraces is not the God of Scripture. This is not the Christ who was crucified for us. This is a God, little g, and a Christ of man's own imagination and making. This is a God men have created in their own image. We are created in the image of God. We are not to create God in our image. But this is exactly what's happened in our culture. And they do that. They create God in their own image to justify their own sin and to soothe their seared conscience. And apart from the gospel, and apart from Christ, they are lost. They are hopeless. Apart from the Christ who will surely offend them if it is the Christ of the Bible, they have no hope. The question is, do we have enough conviction? Does the church have enough courage to tell the truth, to stand for the truth, even in the face of fierce opposition from the world? I'm going to tell you God's remnant does. His church does. But I'm also going to tell you, if you look around today, you're going to see much of his church does not. Now, that doesn't mean they haven't. They're not his remnant. It may mean they haven't found their legs yet. It may mean they haven't, they haven't realized that they have a spine that God's given them, and they need to use it to stand up straight. But God has a way of helping his church, helping his remnant, helping his sheep when they fall down, when they become downcast. And I'm telling you, right now, much of the church is downcast. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the door to life. He leads us out of sin and death. He brings us into the life of his sheepfold. And we go in and we go out and we find pasture. John 10, verse 10, last verse of this parable. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Why does the thief come? Jesus makes it very plain. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Many Christians quote this scripture in reference to the devil being the thief that comes. And I'm not saying the devil doesn't fit that description as a thief, a killer, a destroyer, and, and much, much more. But Jesus is not talking about spiritual entities here. He's talking about flesh and blood. He's talking about men who are no doubt influenced and subservient to the devil, knowingly or not. 
And there are many who are knowingly, there are many who do not know that they actually are subservient to the devil. And do you know that the devil does not care whether you knowingly or unknowingly serve him? He's just, he's fine. I think he probably prefer that you do it unknowingly because it helps him stay undercover. He, he doesn't care. Do you know the devil doesn't care if you profess to believe in God, to worship God, if your lifestyle and your life doesn't, doesn't match up with what God has shown us in his word? He'll let you be a clanging symbol all day long that makes no sound, that gives no witness to God's glory and to his gospel. He'll let you be that all day long and think that you're just fine. But you know who won't let you do that? God won't let you do that. The Lord Jesus won't let you do that. Because if you are his sheep, he loves you enough to not let you do those things. Jesus is talking about real men who come as thieves, killers, and destroyers. And it is a spiritual destruction they bring. That spiritual destruction will in turn bring about an emotional and physical destruction as well. It will. Our danger is not just some spiritual danger. That's our ultimate danger. You don't want to end up separated from God for eternity. But the enemy doesn't want to just separate you from God for eternity. He wants to make your life miserable here on this earth. And he will work to do that so that the destruction, the death, the, the stealing that takes place, the robbing that takes place is not just spiritual, but it's, it's mental, emotional, as well as physical. I'm not talking about going through trials and tribulations. God sends his children through trials and tribulations for his glory and for our good. Satan and his false apostles do not come as we might think. They don't come the way Hollywood presents the demonic. Anybody in their right mind would be afraid of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. Paul writes, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. I mean, if you want to poison your dog, you don't just put a, a bowl of poison out there. You put enough into a good piece of red meat and you give it to them, and they think it's all great until it kills them. If we have not entered by the door who is Christ, we are susceptible to this killing, stealing, and destroying. Satan wants us to be fooled as to what that stealing and that killing and that destroying might actually look like. It can look like utter death and destruction, and often does, but it can also look like gaining the whole world, but end up losing our soul. Both our favorite modes of killing, stealing, and of destroying that the enemy likes to use to employ against God's people and against human beings in general. And the reason he hates human beings is because human beings are created in the image of God and he hates 
God and he hates God's image. I just read, a, I saw an article talking about the, the, what's becoming a growing problem. Now, this, this, this wasn't written by Christians. This was written by the world, the woke world, is realizing that we got a problem in America. It seems like the tactic of the enemy has worked so well that America is now facing a population crisis in, in the reverse order. You know, we talked about overpopulation, we're going to kill the world because we've got too many people in it. Well, now they're realizing that so many men have gotten vasectomies and so many people are not having children. We're, we're having a crisis of population because people aren't having enough babies. And they're thinking, uh, we don't have enough people in the economy paying enough taxes. Uh, these uh, millennial riders who are riding us are thinking, well, who's going to take care of me when I, when I get old? Ain't going to be enough people around to take care of me. I, honestly, I think it's quite comical. And, and I actually think it's a wonderful strategy by God. Because guess who's all the people not having babies? I'm just saying, guess who's having babies? Christian. Christian, have babies. Christian, produce children. Christians, produce, reproduce, so that the image of God will fill the earth. Then baptize those babies, raise those babies in the fear and nurture of the Lord so that they grow up and become the leaders of the world and lead the world back to Jesus. We want a quick fix because we go to movies that last anywhere from, you know, two to three hours, and, and the problem's all fixed at the end of the movie, unless there's a sequel or something. And then we, we have a horrible time waiting for the sequel to come out in the next two years that it takes to make the movie because we're so impatient. We need to learn the long-suffering of God, the patience of God. That's why we started a classical Christian school here. How are we going to change the world? We're going to start by having babies and raising those babies up and teaching them the truth. Not some woke, non-gospel that the world wants to indoctrinate our children to. No. Don't allow that. Do not allow that. Jesus makes it clear that if we are his sheep, we know his voice. If we know his voice, then we must heed his words. We don't always immediately obey. I don't know. About, I'm just going to say, for me, I don't always immediately obey. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to confess to you right now, Pastor Jeff does not always immediately obey. Sometimes God has to do a sanctifying work in us by his Holy Spirit. And how does he do that? Well, Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He he does it by using light and momentary afflictions that are working for us a more eternal weight of glory. Do you catch that contrast? Light, momentary versus heavy and eternal. I believe we are collectively experiencing such grace from God right now in our culture. This is not the time to run around thinking the sky is falling because it's not. God is working. And we should be thankful he's working, and we should join him in that work and do everything we can to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Start with your own life and move out from there. 
I believe we are collectively experiencing such grace from God right now in our culture. And our response is still ongoing, and the Lord is observing as he works. We do not generally like that type of Holy Spirit work, but God loves us more than we love ourselves. You do realize that, don't you? And so he works in ways that we would not choose for ourselves because he loves us more than we love ourselves. Jesus said, I have come for life. Remember, you know what the thief comes for. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly full. Contrary to what the culture and much of the church thinks it needs, it needs the life that can only come through Jesus. Not their own new and improved version of Jesus, but Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. We're the ones that are to change. He doesn't change. We have to change. If the church Jesus died to birth will not give the world the true Jesus, then who's going to do it? No one. You are it. We are it. We are the salt and light and sheep Jesus has placed here for such a time as this. This is our time of visitation on the earth, and time is wasting. What we are going to do for Christ for an eternal difference, whatever we're going to do for Christ to make an eternal difference, we need to do it. That eternal difference is to be made in us, it's to be made in our families, it's to be made in, in our church, in our city, our county, our country, and beyond. And we need to be busy about the bastard's business now. There's no time to waste. Thank the Lord that he is a redeemer of all our waste. He knows how to restore what's been eaten away. The life Jesus came to give is described as abundant. In fact, it's super abundant. Words can't really describe it. We can't accurately imagine it. But it is the life we have in him. It is the life he desires for us to live and move and have our being in. Right here, right now. Not one day when we get to heaven, but right here and right now. On this earth, we're to live in that life moment by moment, day by day, is to make a difference until we are no more on this earth until or until he comes again. And I believe chances are that we're going to be no more long before he comes again. So let's get busy about doing what we need to do to make a difference, not just for us, but for those coming after us, for our children and our children's children to a thousand generations. Until he comes again, we are to be living life abundantly to the full. We are to be working and warring and praying for his kingdom to come. We are to be his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to do that in the smallest of ways and in the greatest of ways. But mostly in the smallest of ways because that's really what the world is made up of, a bunch of small things that turn into great things. So don't ignore the small things. Pay attention to them. You might be wondering when or if we will see that kingdom coming and his will being done on earth or anywhere around us because it doesn't seem like it is right now, right? That's what everybody's saying. 
Well, let me remind you that the Lord has already given us the answer to our question. Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he has put all in subjection under him, he has left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, for his sheep, for his very own. We do not yet see all things put under him, but they are, rest assured, we will see it. That is his promise. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, when Paul writes, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you are the body, if you're the feet, what's under your feet? All things, the Bible says. Can you see it? Don't look at that. Look at your head. Look at Jesus. That's who we can see. And if we can see Jesus, we know all things are under his feet because that's his promise. That describes who he is. It describes who you are and where you are. He is the head over all things to the church. That's you. You are the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are not only, we not only cannot lose, we are victorious, not because it always looks like victory. How victorious did Jesus hanging on the cross look? It didn't look very victorious. But it's the greatest victory that the world has ever witnessed. It just didn't look like victory, but it was. And it is still today. We not only cannot lose, we are victorious. Not because it always looks like victory, but because he has already won the victory. And he has promised victory for us. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That is his promise to you and all his church throughout all generations, past, present, and future. Now is the time for courage. Now is the time to stand. Now is the time to fight. Now is the time for the generations to come and for his Glory, rejoice, because Jesus is Lord. Amen? He really is Lord. We really have reason to rejoice. Praise God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please stand and receive your charge. Men are groping around in darkness, calling their death life calling their evil good, all the while suppressing truth and unrighteousness. All they have apart from Christ is only death. We, on the other hand, were once darkness, but now, by His grace, we are light in the Lord. And we are commanded to walk as children of light. But not only walk, but talk and work and war and pray as children of of light. We do this to see his kingdom come and his will be done. We do this in obedience to our Lord, 
in order to see the steady transformation he is working in his world and in us, his people. We are the city he is building for his glory. This is our time of visitation. This is our time on earth. This is our time to work and pray and see his will be done. This is our time. We must not waste any more than we already have. Now is the time to declare by word and by deed that Jesus is Lord. And you must do it through both. God is working in you and all around you. So is the enemy. That opposition, that disruption... That oppression, that depression you feel is the enemy seeking to stop you, to stifle you, to break you down. This is why you are commanded to submit yourself to God and resist the devil and believe that he will flee from you because that's exactly what God says will happen. Obey until God's word, not your wish, comes to pass. Our victory is God's promise. Church, we are commanded to stand, therefore stand. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. We are in a war and the only way we lose is if we do not stand and fight. And we may lose, but the church won't lose. Jesus is Lord and that is good news. Good news that cannot fail. Amen? Let us sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.